Welcome to Portal to Ascension Radio. Are you ready to expand your consciousness? Your hosts are Neil and Soul Gore. This is a revolutionary, cutting-edge, and deeply esoteric program. Join us as we explore the nature of our reality. Here is Neil and Soul. Welcome, everyone. This is Neil Gore, one of your co-hosts here. And I'm Sol Gore, and this is Portal to Ascension Radio. And we're here to explore and expand your consciousness with revolutionary awareness. Hey, so uh, last week we had a replay of our Roswell experience with Paula Harris, and the week before that we broadcasted live from a Full Disclosure Online Summit. Right, Full Disclosure Summit, in case you don't remember, was a five-day online event took place uh, two weeks ago now, maybe even three weeks almost, and each day was on a different topic. We had day one, global financial fraud, where we exposed the conspiracies of existence and the financial enslavement, what's happened with the monetary system in regards to the central banking system. And then we went into medical advancements and plant remedies on day two, which was probably one of my favorite days because it was really epic awareness on um, the ancient medicines of Earth and how they were used by indigenous tribes. Day three, we went into true world history Day four was on extraterrestrials, and day five was on spirituality. And this event was just nonstop awareness. 31 presenters in five days. I did not know I could sit there for uh, <laughs> 10 hours a day, right, baby? And yeah. listen to this event and information. Maybe next time we'll do three days because it was intense and a huge download. Lucky for everyone that they get unlimited replays. And if you want, you can still go back to the website and sign up, and you can catch all the replays. Go to fulldisclosuresummit.com com and then check that out and please sign up and support us and all the all the speakers there in getting this awareness out so just a couple of announcements before we move into our our um, guest for today we have a few events coming up this coming up next week on may 19th and may 20th we have two events that are live from irvine so in irvine california if you guys are in or around that area please come out and check us out we're going to be live with trisha mccannon on may 19th and then again with her on may 20th and we're actually simultaneously broadcasting these events online so there will be in-person and online events you can go to portaltoscension.org and check it out the first event we're doing with her is going to be on antarctica and the scientific evidence for lost civilizations which is going to be an event that is going to reveal um, sonar images and all types of um, evidence that shows that there's a lost civilization in Antarctica and what happened to them. And it seems that there was a flash frozen, um, flash freezing of this civilization some time ago. And she's going to be talking about that. And then on day two, it's a fully encompassing Atlantis event where we're going to be talking about the spiritual connection, the extraterrestrial connection the advanced technology they have, when they fell, um, what their purpose was, and what connection we have to them now, as well as evidence that's resurfacing, which um, coincidentally or synchronistically, the person on our, our um, show today, actually a lot of the evidence does come from him too, shows that this civilization actually got wiped out quite some time ago, around 12,000 years ago, and there were great civilizations on this planet that got wiped out at that time. So please come check us out if you're in Irvine, in or around that area. Yeah, I really have to stress the importance of our live events because we're not really live that often. And this is like a super special event and it's two of them in the same area. So I would definitely, definitely come out, 
super, super important information. And Groundbreaking. Yes. And this is really uh, where we're heading now. We've been doing online events for a couple of years. And before that, we were doing live events. But now we're going back into live events again because the whole thing is we really want to take this on the road, go to communities that don't get this awareness and you know, have gatherings when we come together in this awareness, we can really make change on earth. So the Trisha McCannon events we're doing next week are a part of the Lost Civilizations tour that we're going to be doing with her that starts next week and is going to go until the end of July. And then we're also doing a tour with Michael Tellinger starting at the end of May. That's going to be uh, called the Hidden Origins tour, where he's going to be talking about Adam's calendar and South Africa and all a lot of evidence that he's found there for ancient civilizations. So it's, it's kind of funny, actually. I was thinking just yesterday how funny it is that the tours that we're doing just happen to be completely entirely on true world history and that's one of our biggest passions so mm -hmm, it seems yeah. like the awareness right now for our true world history and what's happened and you know like history has been written and rewritten by the victors it's been changed so many times that we just take it for or granted and our, take what everybody tells us, whether it's our preacher, our parent, our government, our history books, and we just go with whatever rhetoric they're spitting out to us. But ultimately, we are completely have the trajectory of our human history off. And the guest today that, that we have coming on is going to speak about that, right, baby? Who do we have? Yeah, we have Brian Forrester. And he was born in Rochester, Minnesota, grew up in Canada. At age 11, he became fascinated with the art of Haida and other Native people and began carving totem poles, learning from Native teachers. Brian decided to take up carving and sculpture full-time at age 25. This included the creation of 15 full-size totem poles, dugout canoes, masks, bowls, boxes, and other Native-style works. While living in Hawaii, Brian was hired as an assistant project manager for the building of the 62-foot double-haul sailing canoe. Over the course of the next decade, he explored Polynesia, looking for the source of the Polynesian people. Peru became his next major area of interest. The study of the Inca culture led to his writing of, the, of his first book. He also writes articles for Graham Hancock and was associated with Lloyd Pye of the Star Child Project, whose geneticist is analyzing the DNA of elongated human skulls of the Peruvian Paracas culture on his behalf, which is very interesting because the elongated heads are a mystery that I'm really excited about the DNA uncovering. So, Brian, are you with us? Welcome. Yes, I am. How are Hi. you? Hey, Brian. Hi. Good, brother. How are you? Welcome. Great. Thank you very much. So we're really excited to have you, and we have a, a couple of questions. Do you want to start telling us about uh, any of the topics that you want to first, or shall I ask my question? Oh, whatever you want to talk about is great. Yeah, yeah. so I think, uh, I know you've been studying the Nazca Lions in Peru for some time, and I've, I've been interested in them. Can you tell us, through your research, what you found? Um, yeah, there are a lot of theories out there as to who made them and why they were made and how they were made. And so I studied all of the theories and wound up writing a book about it. And the basic story is that they were created over the course of a thousand years by two different cultures. Um, they stretch from, I'm in Paracas right now, so they stretch from Paracas where there's a giant one called the candelabro that's 500 feet tall. 
and uh, they extend all the way down in a southeasterly direction through an area called Palpa, and then finish off in the actual Nazca area. And most people think that maybe there are 24 figures or 30 figures or something in some lines. There are actually more than a thousand of them, um, and they more than 150 miles long. Um, and so the Paracas culture started making them 500 BC, and then the Nazca took over about 100 AD, and they collapsed as a civilization about 600 AD. So what about the, the theory that these were airstrips for extraterrestrial craft? Is there any um, is there anything in, in those theories? Do you believe in that? I, yeah, I doubt it. That, that goes all, all the way back to Eric von Daniken, and mm -hmm. um, it's, it's highly un unlikely that a, a civilization capable of crossing vast distances in space would need a landing strip. Yeah. I think, I think uh, yeah, they're more... Yeah, they were more create. They tend to be east-west, so there were probably solstice and equinox markers. Um, like the left-hand side w could be for winter solstice, and the right-hand side for summer solstice. Something like that. Right, right. So you speak on many different topics. I'm looking at your website here. We have uh, ancient aliens, Atlantis, Cusco, elongated skulls. Now let's get into the elongated skulls. Uh, um, you had a question on that, right, baby? Yeah, uh, I I read that the DNA is in for the elongated skulls. So, can you tell us about the findings? Well, it's actually an incredibly complicated process. We were able to do some initial DNA testing from a, a private collection, um, and the results turned out that the only DNA ancestry we could detect was uh, European and Middle Eastern. So these people clearly didn't cross the Bering Land Bridge with the other Native American people. Um, right. So that that became quite famous around the world, and that um, then I got a lot of scrutiny about it. And so what we had to do is we had to contact the Ministry of Culture of Peru and do a, an official examination. And that took 28 months wow. just, to get, just to get the paperwork. Right. But I can I can say that the process has begun. There are 28 or sorry, 20 skulls that are in the process of being tested with more than 60 samples. So that will give us a really good uh, database. And so the process has begun. It it's going to involve three of the top laboratories in the world because there are only 10 labs that can do ancient DNA testing. So one lab is doing the extraction. Then it goes to another lab that does the processing, and then a third lab that does the actual um, number crunching computer work. So the process has begun. Um, I have to thank my friend L.A. Marzuli for financing this. It's cost more than fifty thousand wow. dollars, and but it's it's happening. It's, and it's it's under the direction of the Ministry of Culture of Peru. So it's an official scientific investigation, um, and. Uh, step by step, the results will be coming out. Uh, how many skulls are there actually? Well, you have to take samples from. Oh well, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of them. But so um, there are a lot of these elongated skulls. It's not just like you found one or two. There are a lot. 
Yeah, actually, the Paracas culture are the most interesting of all of them in the world. You find elongated skulls in other cultures, but here we've, we've been able to detect the difference between people who had cranial deformation, which is where their heads mm -hmm. were, were bound, and ones that appear to be that they were born that way. And the evidence of that is we recently discovered a nine-month-old fetus in a museum in Bolivia um, that had a skull the size of its torso. Whoa. Yeah. No way. Do you have? Did you show pictures of that in the presentations you've done? Because I'd like to see that. Uh, that yeah, there'll be. Yeah, actually, there are articles on my website. If you if you look up um, Pata Patani, which is P A T A P A T A N I. Then you, you'll you'll find links to that. I also. I went there twice with uh, with two American doctors, one a radiologist and the other a, uh, a neurologist, right. and they both just they both looked at this at this baby fetus and said, "Oh my God, you know that that baby was going to be born with an elongated head." So, what's the theory on um, how these beings came about? Uh, did the uh, did the ones that have um, cranial deformation were they trying to be like the ones that came out naturally and is there any type of like um, connection to maybe like the the beings in the Bible, the giants, the Nephilim? Uh, yeah, we're we're working on all of that. What I can say now is these these people had uh, DNA which is not Native American. So right. all Native American people have they're called haplogroups, either A, B, C, or D. That's it. Uh, whether whether it's North America, Central America, or South America, all uh, all pure native people have those haplogroups, and we we wound up finding, as I said, Northern European and Middle Eastern. So that that means right. that whoever the, these ancient people were, they had to migrate by sea or some other by some other means from their homeland to make it to the coast of Peru, and then over the course of time, because it was probably not a huge population. They started interbreeding with normal people, um, mm. and th there's a distinction between the royal class were the only ones with the elongated heads. The general population were just normal-looking local people. But because inbreeding would cause lots of genetic problems, they started to breed with so-called normal people, and over the course of generations, that caused the skulls to start to shrink and change in shape, and that's mm. when the head binding. That's when the head binding probably began. And do they still have the same DNA though? Once they mated with the other people, can you track it? Can, yeah, can you track that DNA of the original elongated skulls? Yeah, that's that's why we have a big sample size of twenty. Um, mm -hmm. There are so we'll we'll get a, a bunch of, of different combinations of um, of results depending upon the exact location of where the people were buried. There's one specific graveyard called Chongos, which is here, and that's where the largest elongated skulls exclusively in the world were buried. So that's why I, I made sure that in the sample, five from that, um, from that graveyard were selected for sampling, and other, other ones came from other royal graveyards. So I, I think we're going to get an interesting historical mix. They're also going to do radiocarbon uh, testing, so we'll be able to know exactly when these people died. Right, so right now we don't have any information on um, how old these skulls are? 
Yeah, they're generally two thousand plus years old. The yeah. the theory I'm I'm developing yeah, that's not that old at all. Uh, not really, but it's it actually it makes it one of the oldest cultures in um, in Peru. Uh, oh, much right, old, right. Much older than the Inca, and there are other other weird uh, things that relate to the Middle East too. Like they they made the finest textiles in all of the Americas two thousand years ago. They were experts at brain surgery. Um, there are native plant or there are plants that grow here that are from the Middle East that some people say the Spanish brought, but I don't think so. We have date palms, uh, ironwood, and other stuff that you would find in places like Egypt. Right, right. So we actually have only have a few seconds right now. So let's just cut to commercial break, and then Brian, we're going to come back on with you in a few minutes and continue the conversation. Okay. Okay, great. See you in a bit. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Portal to Ascension takes you to the edge of what we perceive as reality. We exist to bring awareness to hidden ancient wisdom, our true world and galactic history, advanced technology, sound and frequency, sacred economics, conscious living, cosmic consciousness and the ascension of humanity. Neil and Sol Gore are your facilitators for this experience. The time is now for the expansion of your consciousness. Participate in our online webinars. Visit portaltoascension.org. That's portaltoascension.org. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions, some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Portal to Ascension Radio with Neil and Soul Gore. To find out more about the program and to contact Neil and Soul directly, please visit our website at portaltoascension.org. Now back to this week's program. And we're back. Welcome back, everyone. And we're here live with Brian Forrester. And just to take a couple steps back to kind of tell you about our connection to Brian is the we're We've actually done a few events with him now, I think maybe three or four in the last two years where he's been online. He's been a part of every event that we've had on True World History and Ancient Origins. He's a wealth of information, hands-on, really finding out what's going on in the world and um, finding out what our true ancient history is. And right now we're talking about the elongated skulls. And I just had one more question about that, Brian, about the elongated skulls. So you said that around 2,000 years ago, is where we can track the elongated skulls in this region. But over time, it seems that through mating with humans, their skull sizes got smaller and they got smaller too. So 
if I was to make an assumption that these beings were maybe giants um, sometime in the ancient past, and then over time they interbred with humans and then they became more human-like, would that be a correct assumption? What's your take on that? It's hard to tell until we get uh, more DNA test, like this major DNA testing done. But what we do know is they supposedly appeared as a full-blown culture 3,000 years ago on the coast of Peru. Uh, they, they, had, they had major navigational skills, so that's what leads me to believe they came from somewhere else. And then 2,000 years ago, they suddenly disappear, because then you have the rise of the Nazca culture. So I believe what happened, actually, is that um, desertification began about 2,000 years ago here, and I think the Nazca people had to flee their their lands to the north, and they wound up um, basically murdering off the royal class of the Paracas because the elongated skulls wow. and their and their native red hair disappears two thousand years ago. Wow! Well, how I it's a shock to me about the red hair. I'm kind of speechless. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, we, we do know now that it's, it's genetically red hair because two experts uh, did major examinations of them, and they said um, by, by looking through microscopes and cross-sections and things like that, they said this hair is 30% thinner than Native American hair, it's naturally red, and it looks Caucasian. So that's another link, and red hair originates in the Middle East. Right. So would, is this knowledge, common, common knowledge in South America where um, cultures and, and governments and history books kind of talk about the elongated skulls and the ancient people there? Because obviously it's not really part of our history books here in the U.S. How is it kind of looked at down there? No, actually, I'm the only person studying them, which is weird. There are, you know, there are a lot of archaeologists in Peru and they just dismiss the idea that these people were different in any way than... Um, wow than Native Americans, and they, they have zero scientific data for that. You know, they, they presume, they just presume, oh, well, it's all headboarding, or, yeah, they just kind of developed as a civilization, and, uh, gee, a potter's wheel? Well, gee, that just spontaneously, you know, mm. no. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's why I've been, you know, I'm, I'm taking a scientific um, look at it, because I, I do come from a scientific background, and, and we are collecting nothing but uh, more and more data that is suggesting that this is a very major um, thing right. in this area. So are the, are the archaeologists down there saying that they're all cranial deformation? Because obviously these skulls don't look like regular human skulls. Yeah, they're saying 100%. Hmm. But you've actually found these skulls all over the world, right? Where else have you found them? Well, actually, about 2,000 years ago, cranial deformation was quite common um, in, on all of the continents except Antarctica so far. Hmm. Uh, but it's, in all of those cases, it's cranial deformation. And, and again, it's a, it was a way for the elite to look different from the common people. So, for example, Attila the Hun had, a, had cranial deformation. Um, elongated skulls have been found in England and Germany and Australia and Melanesia and right. um, up until recently the Congo and different locations. Wow. 
Well, I just, I wanted to touch back on the Nazca lines a little because you mentioned something that I wasn't aware of as well, uh, that after a certain amount of time, the natives that were making them shifted to another another set of them, right? Yeah. Can you can you go into that a little bit, like the times or how that how that might have happened? Sure. Well, again, it, it took. Uh, they were made over the course of a thousand years, so it depends what the climate conditions were and what culture it is you're talking about. So, in the beginning, they were done by the Paracas just as it looks like just playful art. You have these weird anthropomorphic. Um, Half human, half insect-looking things, and and the runways and stuff like that, and then and also the giant candelabro in Paracas, which was probably a navigational market or marker for maritime seafarers. And then as the area started to dry out, because this originally looked like African savanna, and now it's uh, it's sand dunes. So then, with the demise of the Paracas and the rise of the Nazca, <clears throat> they became. Um, they weren't as sophisticated in terms of agriculture. So they started making mistakes, like cutting down all the trees to make pottery. Um, and then I think they started to, to track the, the water systems that are underground because there is very little surface water here. It's mostly underground streams. So I think a lot of lines were for that. Um, other ones were for lunar markings and solar markings and stellar markings. And then... Uh, the animal figures seem to simply be ceremonial. Um, each one has an opening, like the hummingbird, the beak is open. So that seems to be the ceremonial pathway into it. And also the, the spider, one of its legs is extended and there's an opening at the end of it. So it really depends on, on the time period and the mindset of who was making them. Wow. How about the, um, the, the one not a line that has the being that's waving into space what do you think that represents well that's the most interesting one because if you ask a conventional archaeologist here they say that the paracas culture did that right and th there you have some guy you know i've flown over nazca more than 20 times you have some guy who's at a 45 degree angle waving at the heavens so uh that's the interesting possible maybe extraterrestrial connection because we uh, one of the, the early samples that was done was of a baby that died at 20 months old and had a huge elongated skull with blonde hair and um, he spent four he, he pumped all of the information into his computer which was which processed it for four days that's how complicated wow. um, ancient genetic testing is because you have millions of, of these um, DNA components, and uh, he found some that don't match anything known in in humanity. He said they don't match any anything in the major database. So we don't know who who or what that ancestral bloodline is. Whoa! Uh, wow! I I wanted to switch over a little bit. You know, it fascinates me. Now that I know that the lines were actually made by two different peoples, and uh, like it, it kept going, and it's the same for for the pyramids, right? I mean, one people were there, and then the next just continued it. 
and now they're still there. Can you tell us about that? Well, Egypt is actually the classic example of it because um, especially on the Giza Plateau and the immediate area, the ancient name of the area is, is literally called the Land of Osiris. And um, that's where you find the three big Giza pyramids. You also find two of them at Dashur, including the famous Bent Pyramid. Um, and then another site called Abu Rawash and Abu Ghurab. Um, and that, that's where the real pyramids are. And they are technical, absolute marvels because the Great Pyramid is 2.3 million multi-ton blocks. There's, there's no way the dynastic Egyptians built it. Um, right. So what, what probably happened is 3,000 years ago, <clears throat> the, the so-called dynastic Egyptians move in probably from the east and they find these structures there and then they decide, well, let's try to copy them. And so they, they take, take mm. some mud brick and then they start to make smaller pyramids, which wind up falling apart pretty quick. Um, and that's the big distinction. You see stuff which is uh, in Egypt, which is beyond 21st century technology. And then you see stuff that's like, yeah, I, I can see how an ancient culture made that. And that's the that's the big distinction uh, between them, which Egyptologists re refuse again to even look at at that possibility. So what would you say? Um, are there any pyramids that currently exist that are... Um the ones that you said that were just made with mud, are there any of the famous pyramids that weren't made by ancient civilization, but more recent? Um, there, yeah, there are quite a few in in um, of the dynastic ones that are in decay or, or were built on top of something older and much more fabulous. Mm -hmm. The classic example, again, is at Dashur, where you have three huge pyramids, um, all supposedly made for one pharaoh. He kept changing his mind. So you have the Red Pyramid, whose entire casing stone structure looks like it was blown off. Um, then you have the Bent Pyramid, where the um, Egyptologists say that the, the designers, architects, and engineers made a mistake and had to change the angle, which is completely stupid. Right. And then you, have, then you have the Black Pyramid, which is falling apart. And so the Black Pyramid was an attempt uh, made out of mud brick of the dynastic Egyptians to try to copy the other wow. two that are in, the, in that location. Well, what, what do you think the time, um, the timeline is, is on these ancient structures that were made by a more advanced civilization before dynastic Egypt? Uh, pre, I would call them pre-cataclysmic, which is before mm. 12,000 years ago. So was, what's your take on Atlantis and what do you think the timing was for Atlantis and what's the connection to Egypt? Did Egypt come after Atlantis? Well, actually, that's the interesting thing, because the more the scientific evidence comes in of, of this global cataclysm, which was 12,000 years ago, it coincides almost exactly with Plato's account, because right. according, according to Plato, 11,700 years ago is when Atlantis disappeared. Um, you also had the, the rising of sea level by 300 plus feet in the course of maybe a month. Uh, that's that's scientifically based. The end of the ice age wasn't gradual; it was super fast, and so that submerged any civilizations that lived on the coast. Uh, you also have the fact that our planet is twenty three and a half degrees off 
being vertical, which it should be. Mm. I mean, it, mm-hmm. you know, in a perfect universe, the, our planet should be vertical. It shouldn't be on a tilt. Right. <laughs> so again, if you look at the at the cataclysm theory, then it's quite possible that this rapid melting of the ice at both poles caused redistribution of ice becoming water. So that that could have caused the a wobble of of the planet. Um, also, Antarctica is located perfectly at the South Pole, but 12,000 years ago, if mm. the planet was, was vertical, part of, of that landmass could have been temperate. And so I honestly think that Ant- Antarctica, or at least part of it, is where you'll find Atlantis. Right, right. And maybe, do you think Atlantis could have been a, a worldwide civilization then? Or maybe Egypt was a different civilization, or was it a part of that community? Well, we won't know until uh, we get, if we ever get some data out of Antarctica, yeah. be, because they're, you know, they're covering everything. There are way too many scientists down there, and they're not studying penguins and seals yeah. <laughs> or, or, or climate change. I mean, you have these major institutions down there and world-famous people going, you know, it's like a barren wasteland. Why would you go? But there's so much interest there, as well as the mining interests, etc., but um, I think we're looking at th- at least three different advanced ancient civilizations because mm. the technology that we find um, and the tool marks we find in Egypt are completely different to what we find in the highlands of Peru, uh, the megalithic structures around Cusco. And then Puma Punku and Tiwanaku in Bolivia are completely different again. So the whole mindset in Egypt uh, and Peru and Puma Punku are completely different. Right. The last presentation you actually did on Full Disclosure Summit on the True World History Day, you showed um, older megalithic structures and then newer megalithic structures that were built on top of it. One of which that really stuck with me was the Roman, um, the Roman uh, structures that they built on top of structures that were way more advanced than their structures, and their structures are falling down, but the other ones are still there, uh, up and running. You know, so it's it's so. Interesting that all of this is kind of proving what people have been saying within esoteric communities and ancient scriptures for a long, long time. So everything that was really uh, considered mythology, including Atlantis, is now resurfacing for us to all know. To me, it's very, um, I feel a lot of people have kind of pigeonholed this under mythology. So it's going to be quite a lot for people to really accept that mythology is has some truth to it, you know. But I feel like people like you and Graham Hancock are really are on the forefront of disclosing this awareness. So I want to thank you for that. And also, what other megalithic structures have you discovered that kind of have that? Where can you maybe give us a few examples of places just like the Roman one that that exists on the planet? Yeah, that's. I think you're probably referring to Baalbek in Lebanon, and there you find. Um, this, you know, you, you find these Roman constructions, um, and our tour guide was insistent that the Romans had done all the work. And then you see three stones in a line that each weigh a thousand tons, um, and then other ones that weigh 800 tons. Uh, the quarries nearby, there's still two stones in there. One of them weighs a thousand tons, the other weighs 1,200 tons, and was never finished. So the explanation by the tour guide was well, they were cutting these giant um, stones in order to impress the local people. And it's like, are, what are you, nuts? 
And so cl- cl- clearly what you find or what we found, and it's important to go on location because you're not going to pick this stuff up by reading a book. You have to walk around. And what we found, again, were uh, obviously somebody had was there originally and had moved these 1,000, 1,200-ton blocks from the quarry, which is a mile away, and set them into place. And then something suddenly stopped the construction, which, which could have been the ancient cataclysm. And then after thousands of years, the Romans show up and go, oh, this is a good foundation. Let's pick up some of the broken stones and shape them and stick them on top, kind of. And that's, that's what you find. The same thing in Cusco. You find that the Inca were building on top of a, of a damaged megalithic city. Um, so that, that's what I'm kind of focusing on more and more is, to, is the, the, these major differences in construction technique. Right. I think there's like a collective arrogance in the world where we feel that we're the most advanced civilization that ever exists on our planet. So when we find this out, it kind of like makes us reflect on that concept that we feel that we're the most most advanced civilization. Now, you've been doing this for quite some time. And from your research and from the progression that of you coming out with all this awareness, have you noticed that um, this is actually getting bigger and bigger in the world do you think that the history books are going to change in our lifetimes and that we're going to know this on a global level uh yeah i believe so because we're throwing scientific data at it it's not you know i don't have any theories about stuff i wait for scientific data and that's why the tours we do is important because we wind up getting people like engineers and stonemasons and geologists and stuff with us and so i can ask them directly in the field what material is this um, how do you, what kind of technology do you think this is? And that's where we're getting the answers. So um, more and more people are picking up on this. And because we have the Internet, we're going directly to the, the global population with the evidence. We're not going through peer review. We're not asking archaeologists to examine the data. Unless they want to, they can go ahead. But it's our responsibility to share this with the 7 billion people that inhabit this planet. It is. It definitely is. And I'm glad that we have you here with us and on board because we, I have so, my mind is blown from talking to you for 10 minutes. So I'm excited and we're actually going to go to commercial. And when we come back, we're going to touch and speak on Egypt, which is really exciting. So let's go to commercial and we'll see you in a bit. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Portal to Ascension takes you to the edge of what we perceive as reality. We exist to bring awareness to hidden ancient wisdom, our true world and galactic history, advanced technology, sound and frequency, sacred economics, conscious living, cosmic consciousness and the ascension of humanity. Neil and Solgore are your facilitators for this experience. The time is now for the expansion of your consciousness. Participate in our online webinars. Visit portaltoascension.org. That's portaltoascension.org. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. 
You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions, some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Portal to Ascension Radio with Neil and Soul Gore. To find out more about the program and to contact Neil and Soul directly, please visit our website at portaltoascension.org. Now back to this week's program. We're back with Brian Forrester. And Brian, I want to ask you this before we get into Egypt. From my understanding and research that there's been a mainstream narrative of, the archeo- of archaeology and the trajectory of human history when we were primitive, when we were advanced. And individuals um, that have kind of gone against the grain and found out information that isn't in alignment with that have been ridiculed. And a lot of people haven't even come out with the true wisdom um, that they know and will just accept the mainstream because they don't want to lose their careers in this. And that's what I've been seeing from um, different blogs and articles on this topic the last couple of years. Brian, have you experienced anything like that in this community? Um, Actually, earlier on, uh, I had academics contact me and and you know kind of la- laugh at me and and then say where's your data and I would fire the data back at them and then I never never hear from them again and that so always that, works that's one, yeah that's that's the one way to shut them up um, and then I, I always hold a lot more back that if they come back again and say well we need more it's like well here here's more right, you right. have to a- you have to analyze it and then give back to me so um Honestly, it doesn't matter anymore because that kind of closed-minded approach um, of doing things exactly the way your professor did is no longer um, useful. Right. So it also, I am beholden to no one because I, you know, I don't have a, I don't belong to a, a university or an institute, so I don't have anybody directing Freelance. me as to what I, what I could. Yeah, exactly. That's what we all are. That's beautiful. And yeah, I was reading Graham Hancock's last book and he was saying that um that it seems that the the alternative archaeological movement is becoming bigger than the mainstream movement and they're taking over and it's all because you can't avoid the facts anymore the facts are this has happened and you can keep covering up but eventually you're going to know you're lying right so like yeah, right yeah. right now is really time for this to come out yeah well it's the difference between supposed supposed history and real history and when you have scientific evidence you have real history when you have a theory about a culture that's been dead for 2000 years based on what you think uh that doesn't make any sense right right okay so we're gonna we have 15 minutes till the show's over but we're gonna switch paces just a little bit and i want to go into ancient egypt and start talking about that yeah as you said about the scientific data we actually have a sound sound bath events, and some people call them sound healing events. Neil and I uh, play different instruments while people meditate, and we have to let them know. Neil has to kind of give a little pre-speech about the science behind it before they're even open to say, let the vibrations even manifest into something that, that them. might heal them. Yeah, so it's really, really awesome and interesting that science can just make people understand 
the esoteric wisdom and the information that even vibration is. We actually, Neil and I show the Red Pyramid video that you have where the sound frequencies uh, were found when we do our sound lecture. Can you tell the audience exactly what happened that day and how you came to uh, the sound in the pyramids that day? Well, yeah, I've been inside the Red Pyramid five, five different times. We go once a year. And uh, uh, our guide, Yusuf Awiyan, who, who plays the flute beautifully, when he hits a specific tone, the whole thing, the whole chamber vibrates almost at a deafening, deafening pace. I mean, it was, it's clear that these chambers, whether in the Red Pyramid or the Great Pyramid or, or the other original ones, were tuned to very specific frequencies in, in the manufacturing process. Mm-hmm. So do you think that, so the note that you found on the video that we're talking about was A in that area. So from my understanding, um, when you talk about the chakras, A is the third eye, which is inner knowing. And then we have the eye of Horus. We have all these pineal gland representations in Egypt. So do you think maybe it was like a chamber for spiritual growth or what's your take on that? Well, actually, it's actually uh, Ohm that works most effectively in almost all mm-hmm. of them. Yeah, in, the third eye sounds right. Yeah, including in in Peru as well. We have these um, trapezoidal-shaped indentations in the megalithic walls. You stick your head in in one, somebody can be down uh, at the 10th one, and they can hear that sound going right through the stone, like going through the stone. It doesn't go out and then back in. It goes through it. So that wall was tuned to ohm. Um, And I think think actually the fun, it was some kind of, you know, it's, this is beyond our capability, I think. Mm-hmm. It's some kind of vibratory function whereby the planet's own natural vibration was being amplified mm-hmm. for probably lots of different things, not just healing, but also maybe for communication um, or, you know, Stargate kind of things as well. Right. That's that, that also seems to be what the Great Pyramid was. It, it seemed to be... Um, uh, an extension outside of the earth and that's why it's beautiful dimensions and perfect almost perfect geometry was meant to amplify amplify something because we also know that there's a whole series of of tunnels that are under the Giza plateau which connect in some ways to the pyramids themselves so were all the ancient pyramids that predate dynastic pyramids created by just regular civilization that took over later were they all used for with sound and frequency, or do you think they could have different purposes? I yeah, I think they all worked with sound and frequencies, and also the original obelisks, which are in Egypt, were not made by the dynastic Egyptians. They carved a bunch of hieroglyphs on them, but they found them in place. So I think the the pyramids were the transmitters, and the obelisks were the receivers, like a Wi-Fi system, wow. um, especially especially at Karnak, because there were originally uh, eleven obelisks all lined up perfectly they weren't just randomly put in a courtyard to say Ramses II was a great guy they're in alignment and that whole site is 23 degrees off of where it should be so that's a that's a pre-cataclysmic structure yeah and in that video on the red pyramid and for everyone who's listening if you want to check it out Brian Forrester red pyramid on YouTube will pull it right up. You show that there is some sort of crack that looks like there was an explosion there. What do you think happened? Yeah, I think um, 
I think at the end of the of the last ice age when the cataclysm happened, these things were running uh, using Earth's energy, and they became overloaded because I th- because with this with the planet suddenly going from vertical to twenty three and a half degrees, the whole natural Earth grid system suddenly shifted and probably caused these things to overcharge. Um, there could also be solar plasma events that happened at the same time because, again, at Karnak, we see a lot of super high heat damage, and that's proven by our geologist who was with me for five hours in Karnak looking at, at the stone that literally got fried by at least several thousand degrees of heat, like wow. instantly. Right, right. And there's there's a documentary out there called uh, Pyramid Code uh, on Netflix, and I w- watched that, and they kind of show evidence, too, that there was a cataclysmic explosion there, and it looks like that these pyramids were generating energy devices that just exploded, maybe overloaded, you know? And um, I also saw in the documentary that the pyramids have aqueducts underneath them where the Nile River would overflow, and there were copper rods in the aqueducts that would go into the pyramids, creating an electrical current that would make a sound when it goes into the pyramid. Are you familiar with anything in regards to that? Yeah, actually, the most important... Uh, actually, what's it called? Pyramid code? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's... Um, if you notice the old man who, who talks a few times on, on, on that yeah. show, uh-huh. he's, the, he's the source of all of the information. Huh. So so he was, he was only included a little bit, and he, he was the father of my friend Yusuf Awian. So he was the expert. Um, he, he should have had a, a just, I think the whole documentary should have been just him talking because he, <laughs> he was the, he was the, the true source of the information. When he was a kid, he climbed through a, an underground tunnel that went from Saqqara to the Giza Plateau, which is like 30 miles or something. And uh, he, he was the world expert on pre-cataclysmic Egypt. Right, right. And that documentary for everyone, The Pyramid Code is on Netflix, I would say it's probably one of the better Egypt documentaries because it kind of redefines the whole awareness of our history and everything in there really is not the same as what we've been taught in schools with conventional history and including the Sphinx. And we want to know a little bit about that, right, baby? Yeah, it's interesting to me and I would like to know if you know any information about is there anything under the Sphinx? What is under the Sphinx? The Sphinx was was likely found by the dynastic Egyptians already sitting there, like buried up to its neck in sand. Um, there's scientific evidence that it has a lot of water uh, precipitation weathering. The last time it rained that much in Egypt was 10,000 years ago. Mm. Um, also, also, and it's been repaired over the course of thousands of years. The, the face has been recarved, etc. But... Um, the inter- one of the most interesting recent things is they built a wooden um, platform in, in front of the Sphinx and in between the two front paws. And when I asked our guide, Mohammed Ibrahim, why is this here? Um, you know, the, the obvious answer is, well, it's so that the tourists won't get their shoes covered in sand. But I noticed that the center of the platform is a section that can be taken out. And he said, that's where the entrance to the tunnel system is. Wow. That's amazing. So there's also a dating with the with the Sphinx and ancient 
Egypt that Kane, you just mentioned, but also the Sphinx's face used to be the face of a lion, right? And it was facing the constellation of Leo. So when we look back at, at the time where the last time the Sphinx was facing the constellation of Leo, we have around 9,600 BC. Now, can you exactly. talk a little bit about dating and just give me more information on that? Yeah, well, the Sphinx is, is, of course, one of the most enigmatic things, but, but um, scientifically it's been shown as I said, that a lot of the weathering was done by heavy rainfall over the course of a long time. So that dates it at being at least 10,000, if not, you know, 12,000, 15,000 years old. And also the temple that's in front of it, which is, of course, called the Sphinx Temple, uh, was constructed out of blocks that were cut in order to shape the Sphinx. So the Sphinx was not chipped away at by a bunch of guys with hand tools. Multi-ton blocks were, were removed to build this temple in front of it. Um, and you can tell that because one next to the other was cut from the next section of, of area. So the whole Sphinx enclosure was cut out using some kind of high technology. Right, right. Okay, so we only have a, a couple minutes. And so I want to say this and we'll close up. That part of what we do all the time when we do sound healing, sound frequency lectures and talk about anything when it's true world history is we give people the example of Egypt and pre-dynastic Egypt and the true dating of it. Whereas we thought humans were primitive back then, which is what we've been taught. But ultimately, the truth is that we were way advanced back then. But one thing I want to I'm mean, curious about is the Egyptians did. Is there any trajectory of them evolving to that state, or do we just see them kind of disappear on the scene? That's the weird thing. They they just seem to, or these structures just seem to appear. <clears throat> the other thing is that uh, the hieroglyphic system was probably inherited by them from the older culture, uh, because it mm. it spontane it spontaneously appears in the first dynasty. There's no. Like you know, scribbling and then and then slow evolution or even fast evolution into hieroglyphics. They're just there, so it's unlikely that that was something that they developed. They probably found them and then decided to re reinterpret them, um, or or give them their own symbolism. Right. Beautiful. Thank you, Brian, so much for your time and energy and everything you do. Um, your website is hiddenincators.com. So everybody, please go ahead and check it. And Brian, do you want to leave us with a couple of words? Well, I just want to thank you once again for all you're doing and for our relationship and interactions. 95% um, of what people find on my website is free. Um, there is paid content, of course, because I have to, you know, I have to pay the way to get to these places to research. But I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing this out of my own interest, but also I have the responsibility to share what I know with humanity because that's the only way to do things. Beautiful. Yes. Yes, that's the same way we feel, and we will continue working with you. Thank you for being on our radio show, and thank you for all of the work you do and we all of the you. information that you help spread, and we will definitely help spread it with you. Thank you so much. This is Portal to Ascension Radio, and we love you all. Have love a great all. week. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us for Portal to Ascension Radio. We invite you to return for another session of our program next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Gratitude, love, and abundance until we meet again.